Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joining me today, she's a health and fitness coach, Australian national and international bodybuilding champion. It's Leah Coots. How are you doing today, Leah? Hey, good. Thanks. How are you? Doing good. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what did you like doing growing up? Hmm. So I was born in Germany. Uh, but my dad was in the British Army, so I'm British by heritage. Uh, I wasn't in Germany very long. I grew up in England till I was around 10 and then moved to Australia with my family and I've been in Australia since. Um, it's interesting because when I think about what I do now versus how I was as a child, <laughs> you probably wouldn't pick me being where I, where I am now. I was not a sporty kid. Two left feet. I was the type of kid who like tripped over my own feet in a flat race and came (laughs) last. Like, yeah, not the most coordinated or like sport oriented. Um, growing up, music was always my passion. So I started learning keyboard. My mom loves to tell the story. I had a keyboard this big when I was two and every year it just got bigger. (laughs) Um, and then so music and then when fitness entered my life as a teenager, those two things stayed with me, but then there was always a tension between them um, that I'm sure we'll, we can talk about some more. But so not sporty, very much into fitness. And one of my earliest fitness memories was making up aerobics um, routines to Michael Jackson in my best friend's yard when I was like eight <laughs> or nine. <laughs> So, yeah, the fitness journey started then, I think. <laughs> well, I guess if you did, a, you took music, you combined it with fitness, you, and you talked about just minutes ago, it's clashing, basically. Yeah. That's just a perfect combination because you got <laughs> your love for music, your love for fitness, and yeah. one way it works together. Yeah, and actually, in my early 20s, I um, was a salsa instructor, so I fell in love with Latin dance, and... I very quickly became a performer, became an instructor, and that's fed directly into my bodybuilding in such an interesting way. But um, injuries and things pulled me out of dancing, and now I just have a different way of like being on the stage and enjoying performing, <laughs> you know? Growing up in England, was there a specific culture item that you loved about England? Oh, no. <laughs> um a culture item is there anything like growing up in England that you kind of miss or you loved during that time that maybe it has transitioned over to you living in Australia I think the most British thing that has stayed with me is if I'm upset I need a cup of tea (laughs) (laughs) I think I think that's as far as England has stayed with me, to be honest. A cup of tea fixes everything. (laughs) You talked about music. Was it more focused on instrument playing than listening to like an artist, a singer, a musician, would you say? Yeah. Yeah. So I played keyboard, which in England turned into electric organ because that was kind of popular back in the 80s, early 90s. Um, And then when I moved to Australia, I stopped playing for a while, but at school, I started learning trombone and saxophone and cello and violin, like give me an instrument and I'll play it. And then I found my way back to organ and then piano. Um, I actually, I have a music degree, so it became, it became a career. So, and I have a PhD in, in, well, so I'm an academic in music currently. I work in music as well as having um, my fitness world and One thing that always really intrigued me was we are often, and it's the same with any field, we're often led to believe you're either born able to or not, you know, like really playing Mm. into the talent myth. And music is one area where that talent myth has been just highlighted for so long. And when I started teaching piano, then a lot of adults would come and say, I'm just not musical, or they'd quit because they thought, if I was just musical, I wouldn't have to put in any effort. And it just <laughs> broke my my heart. And so I went on this, like adults are quite stiff when they play an instrument if they don't allow themselves to like let go and get into it. 
And I was just really intrigued by this. And I thought maybe it's a physiological thing. Maybe it's an like how they're moving their body. And so I started researching that and very quickly realized it's all here. Yeah. Like just with anything, it is all here. And so I knew I didn't want to be a performer. Um, it just is nothing that I've ever really wanted to do. But I fell in love with what is the psychology of learning and why are, why do people not follow what they're passionate about? And so my PhD was actually looking at mindset transformation and how can I as a coach, I as a teacher, how can I help adults to learn like how do they get out of their own way and actually embrace what they want to do and so that's translated to life you know it's the same in fitness it's the same with sport like there's so much crossover getting like to that tension between music and sport there's so much crossover in sports psychology that is coming over into the music world because talent is allowed to be debunked you know, we, we're giving ourselves permission to kind of pull the curtains back behind what is going on behind the scenes. They're not born being able to do what they do, you know, and I'm really, I love that because then I go, well, what about the people who aren't these mega stars or aren't these pro athletes or aren't these amazing humans doing crazy things? Like how do they allow themselves to be amazing in their own right and see how far they can go, you know? That I excites I always thought everyone should learn how to play an instrument. I think there's something about playing an instrument that teaches you so many different skills that you can utilize in every other thing. And you kind of talked about it where the mindset of an adult trying to take on a challenge or learn something where it's mental, physical, emotional, all those different things where no matter what you do, a CEO has to go through the same thing. An athlete's going through the same thing. A musician's going through the same thing. But it's just crazy how one it all forms together. But I love music. Like, I wish I was still playing the French horn when I was in middle school and high school. And then I quit after college because you're like, eh, I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. But I look back at it. I'm like, it was so much fun. But I take those skills and I utilize it everywhere. Now, I can't yeah. sing for my life. I am not that musically talented. But give me an instrument. I'm good at that. Yeah. And, you know, you learn strategy, you learn patience, you learn mistakes are a way to learn and grow and you learn to embrace like the process. Yeah. So like the one thing that music has taught me that directly translates to fitness is embrace the process yes. and understanding how to learn and how to be intentional, you know? So those, those types of skills, they're just life skills for growth anywhere. And so I feel actually the tension that I thought I had between those two things, like I'm seeing more and more value in my experience, my musical experiences that have actually just enhanced my fitness world. Is there an instrument that you wish you got to try, but never Ooh. got the opportunity to? Oh, good question. I don't think so. What would I play? I would probably spend more time learning guitar, I think. That's I picked mine, up guitar. Yeah. yeah, I picked up a guitar. I like instruments that it's not just you have um a melody, you know, or one line of harmony. I like uh, you know, like piano is my instrument, you've got melody, harmony, different lines, and it's the same with guitar. I really like being a one man band in a way. <laughs> Guitar would be so much fun because I love like the rock, rock and roll kind of like you see those music videos and the guitarist has that solo and he's just jamming. And I'm like, that looks so fun. And then when the person's singing, they're just in the background, but you know, they're, it's part of the song. It'd just be so much fun. I just, now it's like, okay, the cost of it, doing it, it just, all, all the stuff adds up. But then again, there's YouTube, so you can learn it probably in a month. Music That's right. I wouldn't like me saying that because they're like, it takes years to learn how to do that. It depends if you want to learn or master it, right? In a month, That's you're true. not really selling out to millions of fans, but it's enough to, to get by. And it's one of those things where it's never too late. So it may not That's be a priority true. now, but in five, 10, 15, 30 years time, like it might be, oh, this is now a priority. Like it's never too late. And that's the other thing with anything in life. If you tell yourself I'm too old or it's too late, like how sad, like you're still alive. 
if you're alive, then you've got the potential to pursue your passions, you know? When did your fitness journey start? At mm. what age was that? Mm. So apart from the Michael Jackson um, <laughs> I was 15 when I first went to a gym and it was actually like my boyfriend of the time was a bit overweight. He wanted to get in shape and I was like, oh, I'll come along. Um, and I just fell in love with it. It was this instant, this is fun. And I think part of it, it's always I don't think you can escape being in your teens and not having body confidence issues. Mm -hmm. And so it was fun and I loved it, but it quickly became an unhealthy obsession where, I mean, I've never, I've been fortunate that I haven't had a weight problem in, in my life, but I have had the thought that I had a weight problem, even though looking back, like, I think every, well, I can only speak as a female, but there's that quote that says, I wish I was as thin as when I thought I was fat. Mm. Like, you, you're just never a good judge of, of your own body. But as a teenager, especially, um, so I went through a stage of counting how many calories I would eat and making sure I would burn more than that in the gym. And I was spending like three, four hours a day at the gym. It was a really unhealthy it was like, yeah, it was an abusive relationship. Like I loved it so much, but it was really doing damage to me. And I started getting a lot of injuries. So um, I remember doing, I was doing an aerobics class. It was a kickboxing class. And I did this uh, roundhouse kick and I tore my um, my hip flexor. Couldn't Ooh. walk properly for like three months. It was, it was a proper tear. Um, and then as soon as I was healed, I went back to the gym and I pulled my other one. <laughs> not as bad, not as bad as the first one, but um yeah, so that was my entry. And then so if I can just rewind a little bit, when I was 12, I was diagnosed with having scoliosis. So I was having a lot of, I think it was my left shoulder, I was having a lot of pain, like tension, as we generally do in our upper traps. And my mum took me to see specialists and they took an x-ray and I had a S in my spine and I was told you have scoliosis, but you've stopped growing. So at 12, I was quite tall. I'm now quite short, but <laughs> I'd stopped growing when I was 12. So all my growth plates had fused. Otherwise they would have put me in a back brace. And so it was kind of like, there's nothing we can do. Maybe start swimming to strengthen your shoulder. And then when I was 17 and I was on the train to uni, um, I was like, oh, this is after I pulled my hip flexors and things. Um, it was an hour ride to uni. And by the time I got there on the train, I'd lost movement in my right arm. Mm -hmm. And I had all these tests done. They couldn't find anything wrong with my body. And I was told, you might never move your arm again. Now, I was 17. I was an organist. And I was a gym fitness fanatic being told, we don't know what's wrong with you and you may never move your arm again. Um, it was quite the quite the challenging time. Um, and I didn't move my arm for six months. And it was intense physio and it was, in, it was just this, I don't even know, well, I do know what happened now, but anyway, um, it was this intense, I need to move my arm, going through physio, no explanations. And then when I started salsa dancing, which I loved so much, I would dance and then I'd lose movement in my arm again. And a few days later, it would fix itself. So I'd go back dancing. I'd lose movement in my arm. And it was this cycle, but nobody knew what was wrong with me. So I was like, well, if no one knows what's wrong with me, I might as well just live my life and do what I'm doing. And then they eventually found I had a tear in my shoulder. So I had surgery. They repaired the tear. Um, and then once I'd healed, sorry, this is a long story. <laughs> you're good. You're good. You're good. <laughs> but once I'd healed, I had the nerve pain that I'd been experiencing all came back. So I would go rock climbing or do something fun and be fine. I'd come home and stir a cup of coffee and I would lose movement in my arm and I would have this intense pain. Uh, and it just went on and on. And I went back to the surgeon and he took a x-ray and he said the staples are still in place it's not my problem it's not surgical go see a physio so I saw a physio 
through this time, it turned out I didn't have scoliosis and my back was starting to correct, but I'm hypermobile. So I pop in and out of my joints really easily. Mm. So I had worn away all of my capsule. So he put pins in place. And so I had eight years of physios not being able to fix me, of surgeons going, nerve pain, I'm not touching you. Don't just stop doing the things that hurt you. Why do you need to be fit? I'm like, I'm a piano teacher who can't play piano. I My mental health will go down the toilet if I can't work out. And I remember my dad saying to me, just stop being fit. Just stop going to the gym. And it got to the point where my brother was over and I got in trouble because I didn't hug my brother. And I said to my dad, I can't. I can't, I can't hug him. And that was my parents going, oh, this is not about your six pack all of a sudden. This is something like serious. You actually can't function day to day. And then after eight years, a surgeon went, oh, this is your shoulder. I can fix you. I'm like, don't tell me that because for eight years, it has not been my shoulder. And he did, he did a surgery and he said the staples were in place. And he showed me a video of like the surgery and he was like pulling out like candy cane, like candy floss. There was nothing attached. All my joint was just loose and floating around like a cloud. And so he said to me, I couldn't fix you. And so it was another two years and a third surgery. And now I have like a big metal rod in there. And he said, they did the wrong surgery to you when you were 21. Oh. Like <laughs> Now... Anger isn't an emotion that resonates with me very often. Like I'm not an angry person, but the resentment of my journey mm-hmm. was extremely intense for years and years and years. Like everything I'd wanted to pursue and couldn't, like I wanted to be a bodybuilder in my twenties and I was told you'll never do a pull up again. You'll never be able to squat again. you will like, when I hurt my hips, which was recurring because of my hypermobility, I was told you'll need two hip replacements by the time you're 40. Now I'm 40 next year and I don't need hip replacements. (laughs) What happened, I think, is the medical world and the fitness exercise physiology world don't necessarily go together, Mm -hmm. you know? So I had surgeons just saying, stop doing what hurts you. I had physios fascinated by my body but they couldn't help because it was surgical. And all through this, my body was just dysfunctional. Like I had a twisted sternum. I just had years and years of everything hurting, nobody knowing how to fix me and me going, I refuse to just sit and be a couch potato, you know? So that's a bit of the backstory. (laughs) But I love that mindset where, even with injuries, you still were going out there and wanting to do what you wanted to do. And I think that's so crucial nowadays, because I think if people have like one small minor thing that happens, they quit right away. They give up. They're like, I don't want to do it anymore. And I feel if you're passionate about something, you got to go for it. Mm -hmm. When the doctors were saying you need to go do something else, did you ever have a backup plan? Like, okay, I can't, I can't be a te- dance teacher because of, I don't want my arm to give out. I can't be a fitness um, athlete because my arm would give out and things like that. Scoliosis, that talk came up. Did you ever think about what can I do now? And that was why I pursued music. And this is where that tension of like, my passion is fitness I love music. Like I love lecturing. So I never wanted to perform. My injuries took me out of performance, which is a really weird blessing in disguise. Uh, And so, but like lecturing, researching, getting into like the mindset stuff and using that academic role that I have to then explore interests that tangentially relate to music, but they're not about music specifically. It's more Mm -hmm. mindset, educational psychology. Um, So that was always my fallback you know and now so my last surgery was how old am I was eight years ago and then it was a case of 
how do I rehabilitate my body? So I still didn't think I would ever be able to pursue bodybuilding. Like everything hurt because my muscle patterning is so different because of my hypermobility. So I was like learning how to walk using the correct muscle patterning. How do I sit and hold myself in space so that my joints aren't hanging out their sockets, you know? Um, And so through this, I found really good exercise physiologists. And then I've got amazing sport Cairo now who understands not only how your body functions, but pain because pain doesn't live in your body. It Mm. lives in your brain. And so I had to, part of my recovery was doing mirror therapy So for the nerve damage, I had to have a mirror here, move my left arm. So it looked like it was my right arm, tricking my brain going, this isn't hurting me. I'm moving my arm without pain. Like Interesting. Just to like really try to disrupt the the memory of pain. Um, So yeah, through all of this, I was still in academia doing all those things and then trying to get into fitness, re-hurting myself. It was a well, I didn't really hurt myself. I thought I did because the pain was so intense. Mm-hmm. So part of my journey is you are not injured. Like pain does not equal injury. It's a lived experience memory that keeps reinforcing itself. Um, and then to, uh, 2020, I was like, I'm in the gym. I know how to do all these things, but I'm not, my body's gone to mush because I haven't been able to be uh consistent with everything I think I need a coach and so I got a coach and (laughs) in the first conversation we had about goals I said I have a goal that I haven't been allowed to have but as soon as I booked this call it just came back so strong that I want to do a bodybuilding competition and the coach said that's a great aim. We can like aim for that. It doesn't even matter if you get there or not, but that's kind of a nice thing to think about at some point. And as soon as I spoke it, it was like, I that I can't see a reality where I'm not doing this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's one thing, like with people who, like you mentioned before, who don't pursue, you know, the first sign of um, something going wrong and they kind of give up. I've just got this, it's like this really in a deep knowing that I just have to do it. It's not mental. It's just this pull, you know, it's the only way I can explain it. And as soon as I spoke it, I was like, well, this is my reality. This is happening. Let's, let's jump in and and figure it out. You know, I want to dive deeper into your bodybuilding journey. A lot of times when people hear about the process for a bodybuilder, it's intense, There's a lot that can go positive and a lot of things that negative. Overall in the journey, was there ever a time that it took too much on your body where you had to really tweak stuff to be able to still continue it? I think one of the things, so the short answer is no, or not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But saying that one of the big things, and this is something for anyone in fitness, there is no one exercise you have to do. There are still exercises that aren't right for my body that would cause me harm that I can't progress on because I have a big rod in my shoulder or because certain things trigger certain pain associations. It's not worth doing them. Mm -hmm. So it's just if you, you, so you need to work certain muscles. There's a smorgasbord of ways to do that. And working with an amazing coach allows them to go, what does your body need? When do we need to pull back? How do we use deload? The first time I experienced a deload, I thought I was being punished because I thought what I love so much was being taken away from me again. Like it was a really, like I have a lot of trauma in this space, right? <laughs> But I learned like the art of recovery and how that fits in with the bodybuilding journey and Mm. how to listen, really listen to what your body needs and knowing when to push and when not. So in fitness in general, your mind will give up way before your body does. You know, I can't do anymore. It's, it's It's a psychological fatigue, not a physical fatigue. 
I have had to learn the opposite. Well, no, what what am I saying? For me, especially when I was in my 20s and stupid and like no one could fix me, so I'd go smash myself, I would go, oh, whoops, that's where my body should have stopped because my mind wouldn't stop. Mm-hmm. Like I would just push, push, push and go, oh, whoops, I did it again. That was when I broke. And I just kind of became obsessed with chasing the feeling of pushing yourself to breaking. It is so alluring. It's addictive like that. I want to push until I break. But since recovery and being fully functional and having so much gratitude for my body's ability to heal and let me pursue this, I've learned to respect the science, <laughs> you know? So I, I think it's a tough one. Is it my mind telling me I can't? Is it really my body telling me I can't? What is, so you know, the the famous quote, no pain, no gain? Yes. That was my mantra up until I was 30. And oh my goodness, all it gave me was loss. There was no gain associated with the pain I put myself through. It was all loss. But there's different types of pain. Mm-hmm. Like I geek out on self-imposed suffering. I love it. I love putting myself against the wall and going, what are you made of? But that's a di- there's different types of pain. So yeah, my body has not yet told me you can't keep pushing. It's told me, we need to adapt or recover more so you can keep going. It just shows that everyone has their journey different than someone else's. There's not one way of doing it because for what you do with fitness is going to be completely different than what I do because our bodies are different. And I think you see so much on social media where you have the people that say they're the experts, they know everything, but as me, I'm a type 1 diabetic. I'm going to trust someone that has type 1 diabetes in the fitness because they understand from a medical side what they're going through I can relate to than someone yeah. that has no idea. Because I did a training with someone who had no idea anything about diabetes. And I said, I have low budgers. I have to stop. And they're like, no, that's an excuse. And I'm thinking that it clicked right there. They have no idea. So for you to say what you just said, I appreciate because it's so true nowadays that you have to do what's best for you. Yeah. But and it's, you can tweak it and make it where you can push yourself a little bit more, but you see the growth, you see the progress, but don't go too far that you're just going to injure yourself right off the bat. Exactly. And it's so interesting, like as a coach, like I attract a lot of clients who have a history of certain injuries because they know I get it. It is. If you have a lived experience as a coach, you're not projecting that onto others because your story is unique, but you can, and this is what I learned through my PhD and my, and my research on mindsets and things. How do you meet someone where they are? Yeah. How do you take out what you want for them and what you think their potential is? Cause that doesn't matter. Where are they right now? And how can you help them to uncover their journey and what they need in that moment and how can you inform them and teach them about the cues that they're receiving in their own mind and body and how to work through that like I absolutely love that stuff so much it's not cookie cutter like you said not one exactly and I think more people need to realize that you could I could be not buff but I can still feel strong because mentally I'm there but everyone, it, you talk, we talked about body image earlier and it's always, well, that guy is buff on social media. I have to look like that, but that's years of work and not something you're just going to get in three months, which yep. I think if tr- people on social media really tell more about the struggles and the process and the years it's take, I think people will respect it more and really learn a lot more. But when they're just saying, Oh, fat loss. I see this all the time on Instagram. It's like, this is how you get fat loss. And it's bullet points. It's like, yeah, it's, you can make it that easy. It's not that easy. Do you know what's really interesting? Like, so the approach that I take, and 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 there's a lot of good coaches out there who do take an approach where their strategies are supported by science. Yes. But how you apply that is contextual. That's the psychology, the sociology. It's not the, this is what science says works, therefore that's what you do. It's not, you know what I mean? So science supported, but definitely individualized and customized to the person because 
life. <laughs> you know, it, yeah, it's so different. Something learning about you, I found that you were vegan, which yeah. that is so interesting. I told a friend and he they were like, what kind of protein does she eat and things like that? I'm curious, how did you become vegan? And what is that signature dish that you mm. use for protein or just a meal in general? I think it's interesting. Yeah. So I was, there's a couple of steps in in any journey. So when I was eight, I went on a school excursion to a sheep farm and this was in England. And I wanted to be a vet at the time because I loved animals, you know, many Mm. kids love that. Now I am also not good with anything medical or blood. So the vet thing was (laughs) never meant to be. (laughs) But as part of that trip, they said, who wants to go to the slaughterhouse? Because, oh, you know, that's what you do with eight-year-old kids. Where, where oh. does your food come from? Which really, to me, I think that everyone should see where their food comes from yeah. so they can make their own informed decisions. But anyway, I wanted to be a vet. I knew that I would be not, I would struggle, but I went along and I guess it was kind of a biology lesson. So there was two dead sheep and they were cut open and we were shown inside but when we walked in like they were they were still twitching because they'd been freshly killed it was just it wasn't a good experience and we were staying on a sheep farm so after that experience I was just surrounded by live sheep knowing their destination and so that kind of really planted the seeds and I didn't know vegetarianism was a thing or veganism was a thing and it wasn't until I was 13 that I convinced my parents to let me go vegetarian didn't know veganism was a thing. And I was vegetarian for eight years, but I was really bullied about it. My parents had no clue. Mum was like, I'm not cooking two different meals, fend for yourself. Uh, so I basically lived on cereal and maybe, you know, like I was, I was not healthy at all. And I really started to feel unhealthy through it. And I kept being told, you're not making a difference. Animals are dying anyway. You're just hurting yourself. And like when you hear this for eight years as a teenager, you kind of get him. So anyway, I returned to eating meat when I was 21. And the week I handed my PhD in, which was over six years ago now, I was like, oh, I need something to read. I need to like stimulate my mind differently. And I read Peter Singer's book, The Most Good You Can Do. And it's just on effective altruism. It's on charities and different human um, ethical issues. And then there was a chapter on animal rights. And it went into, I think, the dairy industry. And I just went vegan instantly. And it was another moment in my life. <laughs> I say I'm not an angry person. <laughs> but this is like the only other time that I've been like really angry for something in my past. Because I felt like I already had the ethics that aligned as a kid. And I made those decisions as a teenager and I allowed myself to be bullied out of those values. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I became vegan overnight and I was done, but I was keto, I think at the time. And I'd been paleo before that. I was terrified of carbs. I was like, okay, what what do I do? What do I eat? Um, I had no idea. And the transition you hear people saying, I went vegan and instantly felt better. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't my experience. My experience was such a meat heavy diet that to go to a straight to a plant-based diet, your gut microbiome doesn't know how to handle it. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're like the yeah, your gut flora and fauna like needs to adapt and needs to change. And for me, that was a couple of months of a fair bit of digestive discomfort while I adapted. But I just knew because it was an ethical decision for me, there was no going back. So I'm glad that I got through those first couple couple of months, started feeling amazing and great. And it was all smooth sailing from there. Um, But the meals... Uh, my favorite meal is choc chip protein pancake, (laughs) which I ate every day of my comp prep as a bodybuilder, which was amazing. Um, I love lentil dal. And I think when it comes to protein, as long as you're like aware of where to find it and you're eating a variety of foods, 
you're good. Like, yes, I have protein powder. I put it in my oats with my fruit and cinnamon and it's absolutely delicious. But, you know, you've got tofu, tempeh, textured vegetable protein. You've got beans and legumes and it's pretty easy, pretty easy. And there's more and more cleaner meat alternatives coming out, like Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger and stuff. They're the hamburger sausage type unhealthy processed foods. But there's some really good pea protein kind of meat replacement. So I can have like a chicken salad and it's it's just a plant-based version. So it's pretty easy. We talked about the fitness part, being an athlete. Let's talk about the accomplishments from that journey. As I mentioned in your intro, champion, bodybuilder. But we talked before, it's not bodybuilding, it's figure champion. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit more. Yeah. So in the sport of bodybuilding, of course, you have a category called bodybuilding. That is the like most muscular, most developed. It's people think of Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, (laughs) I should also say I'm a natural bodybuilder, which means I don't use any um, uh, physique enhancing drugs. I don't use steroids or, you know, anything like that. Um, But so in the sport of bodybuilding, you have different categories so there's bikini there's fitness there's wellness there's sport model there's figure uh and and there's physique and then there's bodybuilding so it kind of is a spectrum of how much body mass how much muscle mass they want and how lean and conditioned they want and the way you present on stage the way you pose and show off your physique is different for each category so i'm a figure and physique competitor so I am a little bigger than what would be needed for like the bikini fitness um but also my personality wise I think these are kind of you pose differently it's a stronger type posing and like with physique you get to do all the muscularity poses you get to show off your biceps and your back in a different way um so my first season of competing was this year my my season was from April to June. So it was quite a long season as a bodybuilder. Normally, if you're going to do a few competitions, they're in pretty close proximity so that you're not uh, prolonging how lean you are for that length of time. Because you mentioned before about whether your body is happy or not and whether you're able to keep pushing. The sport is not designed to be healthy. It's sustainable in cycles. But it's not sustainable in that that's what I look like on stage. That's my new everyday look. Like, no, (laughs) you need some body fat to function in in life. Um, So in April, I did my first competition. And in my state, I won my categories in figure, which was awesome. And I went to nationals and I came second in my first nationals competition. So that was in April. And that that was with Natural Bodybuilding Australia. And then I was told that the way that I pose, I guess because of my dance background as well, like stage presence is just my thing. I just love it. I love stagecraft. I love projecting energy, like performing. How do you draw the judge's eyes? How do you, how can you be charismatic on stage? It's not something I think that many competitors, especially at the amateur level, think about. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my music background, my dance background, like all of these past experiences kind of just allowed that to shine a little in me I think and so I was told that Ms Fitness Australia which is associated with Muscle Mania which is one of the massive federations in the states uh, I was told I'd be well suited because it's a bit more glam Um, you can kind of I don't know they just like it's a bit more (laughs) feminine in a a way look at me I want to pose (laughs) (laughs) anyway so that one was three weeks after Natural Bodybuilding Australia, and I became, I won my amateur, and it was a pro, it was a national show, so they were awarding pro cards, and I became a figure classic uh, pro, and then I was invited straight into the pro show, and I won that pro show, so, which was, which was amazing, there was, uh, it was a different level of competition, which was so good to experience, like the adrenaline and the excitement of being on stage with these amazing pro athletes. And yeah, and then I won, which was just insane. And that qualified me to compete at 
uh, fitness universe in Miami in the States. So I spoke to my coach. My coach is from the US and he then was coming over to Australia to do INBA with, like be here for my last show, which was INBA, uh, which is another, you know, large um, international federation. And so when I won that, He's, he was coming over to do May with me, which was INBA. And I was like, okay, well, I can just go back with you in June and we can do Fitness Universe together in Miami. So my coach came to Australia. INBA was always the federation I care about the most because it's connected to Natural Olympia. And mm. Natural Olympia in Vegas, just like <laughs> the creme of natural bodybuilding, um, that's kind of the the big goal. And so my coach came over, we prepped for INBA, which was May, and I won three pro cards. So I won figure, figure classic and physique and just kind of won won everything that I did. It was insane. Um, Very unexpected and overwhelming at that point um, because that was my like, you know, three to five year goal. Mm -hmm. And I did it the first season I'd ever been in the sport yeah very crazy but when you compete like with a few weeks apart your physique can change a lot so you look at my physique for example in Miami which I'll share in a moment to how I started in April it's only three months but my physique was completely different so it was fun to have time to try different strategies and INBA was where we wanted my peak my peak condition And then we just ate into Miami. My coach was like, now we just feed you up. We just, you've got as lean as we need you to go. Let's just fill your muscles up. So by Miami, I was the biggest, but still super lean, but my muscles were so full. It was such a good look. Um, And then I won Miami. So I became figure universe champion, (laughs) Uh, which, yeah, it was just, such a crazy unexpected journey but I say unexpected my mantra the whole time was what would a pro do that's what I'm doing so I never it wasn't it was a surprise that it happened so soon but I just had this inner knowing I'm going to be a pro athlete one day because it's just what I've always like held you know Without sounding arrogant, it's not, oh, well, of course I'm a pro athlete. It's a, I just know I'm going to do everything I need to do to make it happen, whether it was this year or next time or another time. I'm driven to be, to embody and be and do that person. And that's what it's about more than the outcomes. It's who are you and what and how are you expressing who you are? That's what makes you a pro, I think. Looking at all the competitors, we kind of talked about body image earlier, but with these competitions, there's not, it seems like nowadays, there's not one look that everyone has to look like. You see all different types of men and women in all different peak conditions. Has that shown the growth of the industry where it's not like you have to look, everyone has to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger to win the competition? Everyone, the winners all have different body types, different fitness looks. Is that a positive thing for the industry? Yeah, it's interesting because I think of late, and I'm not an expert in the history of the sport, but especially in the natural world, and I guess it's the same in the untested federations, that's just not my world. There's so many categories and options that there's, wherever you fit there's a place for you that's not to say that everybody should compete or can compete because that comes down to the cycle the psychology of it what are your motivations if it's because you have body uh, image issues this is not the sport necessarily that you want to go down it's not a healthy sport for anyone and everyone but I think that having like the bikini model category and then some some federations have like a transformation category where it literally is your story from being unhealthy to who you are now and it's not about being stage lean it's a celebration of your own fitness journey I think there's a lot of positive messaging coming through that and I also think depending on what you see when you look at Instagram and all those things 
there is a strong message of it's who you become through the process. You know, I was warned by people not in the sport, expect cattiness, expect competitors to be like at each other and for it to be a really toxic environment because it's about how you look and it's an individual sport. So, of course, there's going to be this nastiness in the sport. Mm -hmm. But there's something everybody has their own story that has gotten them to where they are and we all know what it takes to get to stage. So all of a sudden you've got this beautiful family of people who have gone through the same different story but same stuff to get to where they are and it just bonds you in a really, it was unexpected for me, but like I'm making the deepest friendships with people in this sport because we understand each other, you know? And I think that is what is good for the sport. It's like you were saying before, it's about the process. It's about who you become through it, what you what you overcome to do what you need to do. I think that just makes it so special. It's nice to hear that it's not cattiness. I mean, mm-hmm. people aren't trying to have a cat fight backstage. And I mean, we don't hear every story, but it just shows that if you if all the competitors support each other, it makes it more fun and you look forward to that next competition where you see those individuals you're like oh my gosh look at you and things like those kind of reactions then ugh, like we don't need the negatives nowadays everyone should be positive and enjoy the experience because like you said you create those deep long friendships and that's important in a competitive industry yeah, and you know, before you go on stage, you get in your zone, you do your thing, you kind of have that "don't come near me" vibe, and then you get off stage and you go, "Hey, who's <laughs> <laughs> ready to party now?" <laughs> That's, right. That's right. So we talked about your journey, but let's talk a little bit more about you personally. Is there anything that people that are listening don't know about you that you enjoy now, like a fun activity that you do outside of working the competitors? competitor in you that's quite interesting because bodybuilding is quite the (laughs) all-encompassing sport (laughs) you know my favorite um downtime activity at the moment which happens to be with a couple of girlfriends who are also vegan bodybuilders funnily enough um is so in my town there's a new place that is like a community um pool and spas area where there's like a magnesium salts pool there's the cold therapy there's the saunas and the steam rooms and the spas and it's just recovery for your body but it's really social (laughs) so it's not like you're going for a massage on your own or like a float tank when you just on there you know there on your own meditating or something it's it's becoming a bit of a ritual that we get together and share life and recover and then we go out for some amazing vegan food together um I'm learning more and more the value of really deep friendships in a way that I've never experienced and that's because of the sport but that's become more of a lifestyle that I've allowed in my life this year and yeah I'm very very grateful for that those friendships do you guys keep each other accountable in your journey through the bodybuilding and that kind of process we definitely share our experiences and processes and um, give each other the pep talk that we need at, at different times. Um, yeah, it's and it's nice because we all have our own coaches. Um, I think I'm the only fitness coach a- amongst us, but it, it's we respect each other's journeys and processes, but we also understand and can, yeah, but I don't think any of us need accountability so much as understanding and support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything on your bucket list looking towards the next few years? I know next few years, we don't know what's going to happen, but is there anything that you hope to accomplish for yourself? So 2023, November, I will be doing Natural Olympia. Oh, so I will qualify by doing INBA here in Australia. So that will be my pro debut. Um, I will compete here in Australia in the three categories that I'm a pro in. So figure, figure classic and, and physique. 
And then for natural Olympia, figure is my main category. So I will be competing in Vegas. I can't wait. I can't wait. Is that your first time ever going to Vegas? Yeah. (laughs) It is. I've I've never been to Vegas. Um, And I just know the level of competition that that stage brings is just going to like fire me up so much. I think, you know, just hitting that stage is an accomplishment. And I think we all want to win. You know, we all, we don't, we're not competitive. We're not doing it just to give us the warm and fuzzies. We all do want to win, but at that level of competition, it doesn't, it's, I mean, it's not what it's about at the same time, if, if that makes sense. So, you know, I've got things in my mind I want to achieve, uh, but I just can't wait for that experience. It's going to be exciting. It's going to come here very, very quick. It'll be like October. You'll be like, oh, I'm going yeah. to Vegas in a month. Woo. Yeah. I've got 19 <laughs> weeks until my comp prep starts and then 24 weeks of prep. <laughs> We've got it all mapped out. <laughs> the final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? never stop seeking answers and never accept other people's limitations like honestly the limitations that people put on you are either because they want to keep you safe because they don't want you to get hurt or to risk failure or whatever it might be but that is their projection Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that's the big thing. Like, don't accept other people's limitations. And if there's a current limitation, it just means you're on that journey. And just don't stop seeking what's the next little step. You know, I had to learn to walk properly. I had to be okay with moving my body weight when I wanted to go lift heavy things. If I was just going for the end goal, mm-hmm. I'd still be broken. So it doesn't matter how long your journey takes. The time is going to pass anyway. Just chip away little by little. Seek the help from the people who can help you and don't accept the limitations of people trying to stop you. Well, Leah, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we are excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so fun. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise in the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to the full link episode video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.